This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, as an independent commission begins the redistricting process, the state could get another representative in Congress. You'll get an eighth seat. It's just where is that population and where do you draw the eighth seat? We'll have more on that and how delays with the 2020 census are complicating the process. And we hear about an art exhibit focused on a -a one-of-a-kind Colorado restaurant. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Colorado's congressional districts are set to change this year as an independent commission redraws districts based on numbers from the 2020 census. It's likely Colorado will get an eighth seat, which means the map will change for all districts by varying degrees. But delays and complications with the census will likely have an impact on the redistricting process. KUNC's Adam Reyes is here with us now to explain. Adam, let's begin with the basic way congressional districts are determined. What are the considerations here? Is it solely number of people? So great question. There is a risk, for example, of splitting a town between two districts, for example, if you rely solely on numbers. The state's new citizen-led independent redistricting commission is made up of 12 Colorado voters chosen by the state Supreme Court and evenly split between Republicans, Democrats, and independents. Their job is to create districts that avoid city splitting, are as politically competitive as possible, racially fair, and aren't awkwardly shaped, like a big blocky district with thin lines bursting out just to capture specific neighborhoods. And they have to keep in line with state and federal law. So this is a big undertaking that goes beyond raw numbers. But the commission must keep each district's population size relatively even, providing reasoning for any differences regardless of how small. That's where the census comes in. Right. And the 2020 census count was obviously overwhelmed by everything that happened last year. How is that impacting the process? Yeah, so the counting process itself was a mess of shifting deadlines and operational changes that my head is still kind of spinning from. For many, the issues the count faced lead to strong concerns about accuracy. The commission exists to make fairer districts. How is that possible, though, if some cities and towns have inaccurately inflated population numbers while others are inaccurately deflated? Or if some young children, black and Hispanic people, are missed entirely? We know these are possibilities because they happened in previous decades' counts. We won't know how any inaccuracies will impact redistricting until we have the numbers this time, though. Jeremiah Barry is the commission's managing attorney. As part of the commission's nonpartisan staff, he serves the commissioners in a support and advisory role. He says staff is concerned about the count's accuracy, but the state constitution requires them to use it regardless. There's actually nothing that we as staff or even the um, commissions, once they're appointed, um, can do about the accuracy of the census. The count is over, but the messiness isn't. The federal constitution requires census results to come out in December. That didn't happen. The Census Bureau plans to release the first round of state-level results by April 30th, so it could have more time to review the count for errors. Those results are less important to redistricting than population numbers for counties, cities, and towns and such. Those numbers will come by late September. Unfortunately, the redistricting commission's deadline for turning district maps into the Supreme Court is September 1st. Barry says he hopes that the delay will make the data more accurate. It obviously poses other issues with the timing of when the redistricting is done, but getting accurate data is probably more important at this point than trying to get it faster. So it sounds like there's a real chance that the commission won't have local census data before it has to turn in the maps. Yes, although the Bureau could come out with the numbers sooner, 
The Colorado Redistricting Commission's timetable was designed with a normal census in mind. Constitutionally, those local census numbers were supposed to be out by March 31st. Commissioners are then supposed to draw initial maps soon after, and then doing the stuff like ensuring districts are politically competitive and racially fair requires taking those initial maps, which rely mostly on the population numbers, and then gathering input from residents, as Barry explains. The current redistricting process anticipates quite a bit of public input for the commissions. We're required to hold at least three public hearings in each of the existing seven congressional districts and trying to do that in a compact time frame would be extremely difficult. He says the commission could end up putting together final redistricting plans while still holding public hearings instead of after, as the commission's original design entails. What is unclear, though, is what happens if the data comes out after the commission's final deadline. They can't use census estimates from 2019, for example. The Constitution requires them to use the 2020 count. And is there any way to push back the commission's deadlines? State lawmakers are looking to try to change that. Unfortunately, the power to do anything about this rests with the state Supreme Court. As far as Barry knows, nothing like this has been attempted before, but he's hopeful the Supreme Court will change the deadlines because... It's just a fact that if we don't get the data to do the redistricting by sometime in the fall, we won't be able to meet all of the constitutional requirements. Hopefully they will recognize that this is the best way to do the best at doing what the people who voted for those amendments intended to have done given the current circumstances. He says the commission's nonpartisan staff is working on a few ideas that could help if the court doesn't move the deadlines. If the data comes out before the final deadline, the Constitution requires nonpartisan staff to put together its own maps to send the Supreme Court in case commissioners can't agree on their own plans by the deadline. If the deadline isn't moved and the data isn't out by September 1st, Barry says, Colorado could end up in a complicated legal predicament. He adds a delay could impact the timing of the elections in 2022. That was KUNC's Adam Reyes. Thanks, Adam. My pleasure. Despite the delay in the process this year, plenty of people are anxiously awaiting those new congressional district maps. The final members of the Independent Redistricting Commission were announced on Monday, and they begin their business meetings March 15th. For more about how the districts may change, we spoke with Sandra Fish, who wrote about this for the Colorado Sun. She says there's a chance the commission may be able to get a head start with some of those public hearings before the 2020 census data is delivered. Now, the Supreme Court has to approve a plan by December 15th. And so there's a deadline you can work with. And and the Constitution does say that if there are extenuating circumstances that the commission could alter the, some of the deadlines. I don't know for sure, but it's possible you could see them go out and do some early public meetings, seeking input from people around the state in the current seven congressional districts. That would not surprise me. And I think the, I talked to the state demographer and she said she's putting together a range of information that's now available. Like you have population estimates with information on the age and ethnicity of people in each of those districts from 2019, their estimates, but they would be close. So it gives people 
perhaps something to work with. And people are, you know, when I say they're anxiously awaiting what this is going to look like, it's because we just finished a big presidential election, but there are other big elections coming up in 2022. (laughs) Yes. I mean, we're clearly people are already thinking about this and it's going to be interesting. I mean, there are a lot of super geeky people out there who are already like drawing some maps and fussing with the data that exists, but (laughs) there are politicians waiting in the wings who I think it would be accurate to say are salivating over the prospect of running in say this eighth district or maybe a redrawn seventh district or fourth district. I mean, or third, well, everybody wants to run in the third congressional district right now anyway, but I think there are, A lot of people who are out there thinking about this and are really super interested, and by people, I mean politicians. (laughs) Right. Well, is it a sure thing that Colorado will get an eighth seat? I mean, we know the population here has grown, uh, I think, 14% or more over the last decade. Um, But is it a sure thing that Colorado is getting an eighth seat? I I would say it's a pretty sure bet. Um, Mm -hmm. Dave Wasserman, who looks at these things and covers the House for Cook political report actually did recently looked at the maps himself and he included an eighth district. I think it it's pretty much certain that we're getting an eighth district because we do have 14, 14 and a half percent growth over the decade. And as Elizabeth Garner, the state demographer said, there are some significant changes in the population there are some areas that are much younger than they had been. You, you are seeing more ethnic diversity in counties on the Eastern Plains and then all along the I-70 corridor into those ski resort areas. So there are significant changes. And I think the population is such that you'll get an eight seat. It's just where is that population and where do you draw the eighth seat? bringing in this eighth seat, in addition to just the every 10-year process of redistricting, it's going to change other districts. There, Some will grow, some will shrink. Where are we likely to see the biggest changes? The biggest changes are going to be in the fourth congressional district, in part because Weld County has grown so much. And that district goes from Weld and all of the northern northeastern part of the state down to the southeastern part of the state. Where, where there hasn't been as much growth. The southeastern part of the state and the northwestern part of the state have not grown as rapidly. The city of Denver has grown and the city of Denver with the first congressional district and El Paso County with the fifth, they could be standalone congressional districts practically. That moves other counties over to maybe the third It changes, you get into the metro area and things get really complicated because that is where the population is centered, a lot of growth. You've got the first, the sixth, the seventh, all sort of centered in that area. It's it's gonna be interesting to see what what happens. Partisanship was supposed to be taken out of the process with these independent panels. Um, Are things staying non-political as these committees come together? I think it's almost impossible to take politics out entirely. But I think 
that the way this is set up, like I talked to somebody from the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University, and they really feel like Colorado set up a great process here that does diminish the impact politics has. Because in the past, you actually had commission, there's been a commission on legislative districts and you had people from the parties coming in and giving people maps. And it wasn't so much the staff driven process, which with very clear criteria, people would disagree over, you know, what is the status of this particular criteria you're talking about? And I, I think everything's political, but I think this is far less political than it was when you had the legislature trying to do it, and both sides could never agree. That was journalist Sandra Fish, who wrote about how redistricting and the addition of an eighth seat will reshape all of Colorado's congressional districts. You'll find a link to her reporting at KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. On February 15th, former NFL wide receiver Vincent Jackson was found dead in a hotel room in Tampa, Florida. The former San Diego Charger and Tampa Bay Buccaneer was a businessman and philanthropist in the area. In 2017, he was named Citizen of the Year by South Tampa's Chamber of Commerce. Here in Colorado, Jackson was a well-known, highly regarded student and athlete at Widefield High School in Colorado Springs before playing four years of football at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley and eventually getting drafted in the second round of the 2005 NFL Draft. At the time of his death, he was 38 years old. Here to talk about his life and legacy is UNC's Assistant Athletic Director and Chief of Football Operations, Brandon Charles. Brandon, welcome to Colorado Edition. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for having me. Vincent Jackson began his football career at UNC, as we just mentioned. Were there any moments during his time as a Bear that were really memorable or maybe indicated, hey, this is a player with a future in the NFL? For sure. Um, but before we get started, I, w- I would like to send our, um, on behalf of our football program and the entire University of Northern Colorado, we just want to send our thoughts and prayers to Vincent's wife, Lindsay, his mother, Sherry, father, Terrence, and their entire family, his children. Vincent, we love you, man. Uh, thank you for everything that you did to make this world a better place. He'll always be remembered. To answer your question now, I would say that, uh, yeah, Vincent's entire time at UNC were memorable moments. I mean, he dominated the football field, dominated the basketball court ever since he came in as a freshman. So he was a physical specimen. Coaches saw him playing basketball and said, hey, man, I think this kid's athletic enough to do some some good on the football field. So uh, he was originally recruited for basketball and then came up to UNC, was a dual sport athlete um, and completely dominated the, the competition level at UNC, both on the football field and on the basketball court. How rare is that to find an athlete who can dominate both on the basketball court and the football field? It is. It's extremely rare. It's actually a bond that both Vincent and I shared. I was a dual sport athlete in college as well. I attended Colorado Mesa. And so Vincent, a lot of our conversations revolved around the, the, the mental demands, the physical mental demands of being a dual sport athlete. But it's rare. And uh, he excelled at it. He was a diamond in the rough. And just an incredible, incredible ambassador, both to the game of football and the game of basketball. So after college, 
Jackson was drafted into the NFL. What was the reaction at UNC when you found out he made it to the professional level? Yeah, no surprise. No <laughs> surprise there. You know, the NFL sends scouts um, to schools to do their site visits and evaluate the talent. And eyes were on Vincent ever since he stepped foot on campus. So scouts and NFL personnel were drooling over him. Vincent was drafted in the second round of the 2005 NFL draft with the 61st pick by the Chargers. And that was no surprise around UNC, joy, excitement, just true, true happiness for what lied ahead for Vincent. You know, people loved him. People were attracted to him, not only for his, his athletic ability, but just the way he treated people. You know, he was always out in the community here in UNC, helping out the youth, boys and girls club around town. So Vincent was just a, a great member of, of our Greeley community. I'm wondering what you'd like us to know. Um, is there anything we can learn from Vincent Jackson's life that you want to share? What is his legacy? You know, Vincent's legacy will always live on at the University of Northern Colorado. Vincent was a down-to-earth, just an incredible human being to be around. You know, the vibe that he always had was positive. The energy that he had was always positive. He was always looking to affect other people in a positive way, to give to others. In his time with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, he was selected multiple times uh, as the team's Walter Payton Man of the Year. He goes out to one player per team every single year, and he won that award multiple times. You know, the man just continually provided for other people. He was smart. He was very well educated. And, and he really used his education at the University of Northern Colorado to prep him for life after football. He was a business major here at UNC. He, you know, he was a 4.1 student in high school. Academics were always important to him. I had the opportunity to get to know Vincent really well throughout the last five years, um, just, you know, with relationships with UNC football. He was a true UNC bear at heart, you know, blood, blue and gold. He was always reaching out to check in with the program always reaching out, checking in on coaches, former coaches, you know, vision for the future, what's going on, what can I do from afar, anything that I can do to be involved in, don't ever hesitate to ask out, um, you know, reach out and ask. He just was always willing to give. Him and I had a thing going, we, we were in a race. We were in a race every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year to see how many people we could positively influence. We were in works to see what we could do to to get his foundation out here and do some stuff in collaboration with our football program. He was always given. So just want BJ to know how much he was loved, admired, truly cared about by anyone and everyone that came in contact with him. Brandon Charles is UNC's Assistant Athletic Director and Chief of Football Operations. Brandon, thank you so much for talking with us and sharing these incredible memories. Yes, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. While the cause of his death has yet to be determined, Vincent Jackson's family recently donated his brain to the Boston University CTE Center. CTE, which stands for Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy, is a degenerative brain disease commonly found in former football players. Tomorrow, we'll speak with Dr. Chris Nowinski from that very CTE center about his research on the ways in which collision sports and head injuries can lead to significant brain damage.
Since 1974, Casa Bonita has combined dining, decor, and cliff diving for a one-of-a-kind experience, both celebrated and parodied throughout pop culture. But for the last year, the iconic Lakewood venue has been shuttered due to the coronavirus pandemic. One thing that has continued is an annual art exhibition put on by Next Gallery and Casa Bonita aficionado Andrew Novick. KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick spoke with Novick about the show and the beloved venue behind it. You're known as Casa Bonita's number one fan. You've visited the entertainment venue more than 300 times. What is it about this strip mall Mexican restaurant that's often critiqued for its food and its cheesy decor that seems to capture so many people's hearts? I think part of it is kind of retrospective because I've been going there my whole life. So it's like something that we went to as kids and just because it's still there, which is kind of rare, like things that you went to as a kid are usually gone by, you know, 40 years later. But also, even after all this time, it's still entirely unique. I mean, it's a restaurant that everyone complains about the food. So it's clearly not about the food. And every time I go there, I have like a sense of wonder all over again, because it's so big. There's so many things in there, like the waterfall. And, you know, you feel like you're outside. And just like the sounds and and lights and everything in there is just, it's unmatched. Is there a concern that it might not reopen? Yeah, you know, every couple of years, there's a rumor that comes out like, oh, Casa Benita's closing, you know, and it's like, it's never been like a well-founded rumor. Like I've never seen any indication, even when Star Buffet, the parent company um, had a bankruptcy, you know, it was a it was a reorganization bankruptcy and there was really no uh, worry of Casa Benita closing. But in this case, I mean, it's it, I did get worried because, you know, their website went down, their uh, Facebook page went down and the worst ever, the lights of, in the tower went off, you know. So when you're driving down Colfax and you see that you can see it from really far away and it's kind of this, you know, it's this landmark, it's this, this kind of uh, oasis in the distance. That's what prompted me to to get a hold of Bob Wheaton. It was like I got scared, you know, like that it was actually closing. But um, I think it's just going to be a matter of waiting it out. Yeah, I guess one way we're still able to experience it right now is the continuation of your Casa Bonita themed art show now in its fourth year. How did that get started? So when Next Gallery moved from Northwest Denver to West Colfax, and that first year, they always have a big group show, like an open call. And so for that open call, Betsy, she goes by Dalla B., had this idea to do a Casa Bonita show because they're really a half a block west of Casa Bonita. And so she called me in as a Casa Bonita aficionado. And so she and I have run it for all four years. And, you know, just out of like curiosity, like if you had an art show for people to be inspired by Casa Bonita, like what would they make? You know, we weren't really sure, you know, you could make a painting of the facade or whatever, but people have done sculpture, they've done quilting, this year, there's actually a, a tortilla that has magically the facade of Casa Bonita on it. You know, like when someone sees the Virgin Mary in like a <laughs> dinner roll or whatever, someone has like found like the picture of Casa Bonita in a tortilla and it's framed. It's really nice. There's so much cool stuff. And we have about 50 pieces a year and it's still wowing us every time the kinds of things that people come up with. Are there any favorites this year for you? There's a really cool one by a friend, Nate Hayden, who he designs board games. 
and he doesn't sell art. He doesn't join art shows. So I kind of cajoled him into it, but he made a really kind of cool eerie one of it's like a fifties family sitting at a table in the kind of like in the stalactite cave. And there's the flag, you know, the telltale flag that you raise when you want more sopapillas or whatever. But then also there's a gorilla with them just sitting at the table, like just as part of their family. And then the waitress who also kind of looks like a fifties waitress, but she also kind of looks like a mom. So it's almost like that we got the feeling that they just live there and they're just, it's their mom serving them dinner. So I thought that was kind of cool, a little bit outside the norm. There are so many iconic images from this place, things that resonate with anyone who's ever visited even once. The flags on the tables, the cliff divers, someone wearing a gorilla suit, you know, Black Bart's hideout. Yeah, and the facade itself, it's like this pink tower with a gold dome and a statue on top. And then there's a fountain outside. There's at least a, at least one or two that um, evolved the fountain. Did you consider not doing the show this year? Yeah, we talked about it. And that's why it's called Wish You Were Here as kind of like, you know, it's that travel postcard kind of feel of like, in this case, it's like, we wish Casa Bonita were here. But we thought, you know, this year may be more important than ever for something for people to think about Casa Bonita, you know, in its absence. That was KUNC's Stacy Nick speaking with Andrew Novick about the Casa Bonita art exhibition, Wish You Were Here. It's on display now through March 7th at the Next Art Gallery. All of the works can also be seen on the gallery's website. You can also find out more and see images of that tortilla at our website, KUNC.org. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we look at how transportation, or lack thereof, has created barriers for the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Ray Solomon, Tess Novotny, and Alana Schreiber. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.